This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dallas and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we've just had a very interesting discussion with about a, a magazine, Meminatu, which is focused on um, girls empowerment, mostly in Africa, and, and talking about that business model and how it works. And so now we're going to pivot to someplace uh, quite different. We're going to welcome James O'Toole, who's Professor Emeritus at the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, founding director of the Neely Center for Ethical Leadership, and the author of Enlightened Capitalist, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Tried to Do Well by Doing Good. And I love the fact that it's cautionary. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so, Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. We're delighted. We're delighted. I, I have to confess, I did not read the entire book. It's pretty, it's pretty thick, um, but, but I did skim through and got some of it. And I'm going to resist the urge to jump to the trends that you mentioned, because that's certainly what we want to talk with. But I think it would be great for you to start off and, and tell us about these cautionary tales, because I really think what your book does is it highlights something that the social entrepreneurs we deal with know – it's hard, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to do this. It's hard to sustain it. Doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it is hard. So talk to us about some of these cautionary. Give us an example of a cautionary tale. Well, I think it all started with uh, Robert Owen uh, in Scotland in about 1812, 1815. And so um, this is surprising because our audience is like, oh, this is new. This is just happening. No, uh, it's been happening pretty steadily for the last 200 years. <laughs> yeah. And the patterns have been fairly constant over all that time. And that's both, I mean, there's some good in that, but that's where the cautionary tales come about. And Owen is really the place to start. He was the uh, pioneer of business reform in the the darkest days of the Industrial Revolution during Mm. Robert Blake's um, dark satanic mills and all that. Uh, What Owen did is he took um, kids who were as young as five years old at that time uh, out of the factories, and he put them into this beautiful modern uh, progressive school, and he lowered the working hours of, the, of, their, of their parents. He provided them with um, uh, decent wages, uh, clean working conditions, uh, good places to live, healthy food, uh, marvelous, uh, really marvelous environment. And, um, uh, he, and he was also, in, in his cotton mill, he made a lot of money. And people didn't believe it was possible to make a lot of money while you were still treating your employees well. Mm-hmm. And so many people came to see what he was doing. But the problem was nobody copied him. And indeed, um, his investors, who were really the people who owned the company, he was um, the founder and the manager of the mill, but he was far and away, uh, the, 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 far away from being the, the majority owner. Uh, they kept telling him, why are you wasting all of your money and spoiling your workers? None of your competitors are doing these things. And so uh, after a period of about 15 years of fighting his investors, they drove him out uh, and they uh, ceased uh, all of the uh, enlightened practices that Owen had done. And the company went back to being uh, a dark satanic mill and also losing money in the process. And unfortunately, uh, I've got about... um, I've been saying 50 stories yeah. uh, over the 200 years where the pattern has been pretty much the same. Uh, oh. There have been a few exceptions, and that's the bright side of all of it. But uh, by, by and large, uh, 
uh, most companies have not been able to sustain uh, enlightened management practices for more than, say, one or two changes in uh, top management. And why was that mill successful? Because I think a lot of our listeners are going, gosh, that, that does sound more expensive Good quality food and you know good uh, you know accommodations if they're if they're staying there safe working environment those things cost money how how in that particular instance was it profitable and competitive? Well, uh, for one thing, uh, he had healthier workers, which uh, mm. makes a big difference. Uh, another thing is that um, they came to appreciate what they had and they wanted to make the mill a success, so they worked harder and they worked smarter. And, um, you know, he trusted the, the employees to, you know, to find ways to do things more, more productively. He listened to them. Uh, and um, basically by uh, giving them jo- job security and taking care of their kids, they knew they had a good thing. And uh, they resisted it at the beginning because they thought he was just trying to do an industrial speed up on them. Uh, but when they saw that he really had their welfare uh, in mind, uh, you know, they they decided that they were going to make a contribution, and they certainly did, and to the, made the mill probably uh, the most successful mill uh, in, in the world at that time. Well, and I think that's it's just so fascinating because again, you know, these are there's a lot of press and stories, and in fact, research being done that sort of shows all of that's right. You know, that if you get the employees who are engaged and they feel they're in a good situation, they're given autonomy to to sort of help make changes. It does have a positive performance, financial performance. And it's just odd that we are still fighting this battle. Yeah. Well, I, I, hope you, I hope you feel that performance from me, Cheryl. <laughs> I'm, I'm very grateful. Uh, no, but, but so, you know, Jim, it sounds well, like... 19, you know, I, tell, I tell you, in 1972, I wrote a controversial report for the, during the Nixon administration called Work in America. And in that, what we did is we documented all of the research to that date that basically demonstrated what was wrong with American workplaces, why they were not being productive, and why there was high levels of stress, um, you know, why there was a, a lot of uh, uh, industrial accidents, uh, why productivity was low. And, um, and the, the, we, this was the front page of the New York Times, big spreads in Newsweek, Businessweek magazines, all the rest of it. And you know what? We're still talking about this stuff today, uh, yeah. and, we're, and we can't keep having to relearn it. You know, like it's like every year that people rediscover this stuff. You know, but uh, you know, for a long time, people have understood this. Why, Jim? Why do we <laughs> keep forgetting the the lessons, especially when it, these aren't examples of a company doing good and sacrificing returns? You're giving examples that stand up to the market and really have those triple bottom lines, or however you want to refer to it. Why aren't we learning these lessons? What What's holding us back from adopting these practices well, universally? There's not any one reason. Um, in, in these companies that I, that I looked at, uh, they're, they're, they, they uh, ceased doing these good things for a whole variety of reasons. And um, some of it was just executive ego. I'll give you probably the most egregious example. Ooh, good. Was, uh, Johnson & Johnson Corporation. Um, under um, Jim Burke, the, the CEO uh, in the 1980s, uh, it, Johnson Johnson was widely recognized as the most socially responsible company in America, particularly after the Tylenol crisis mm-hmm. and how they handled that. And, you know, and, and it was really the model coming in every business school in the country. Absolutely, were teaching the, that that uh, that, that case. case study. Yeah. I read that case study. Absolutely. You know, if you were at a business school, you read it yep. at that time. And unfortunately, the the CEO who followed Burke decided 
that he was going to stop all of the good things that Burke did, all the things that Burke had put into place at Johnson & Johnson to keep the company's practices uh, ethical, and also the company was very productive under, um, uh, uh, under Burke as well. And wh- why? Why did this happen? Okay, so I, I, I investigated it, and it ends up that it was a case of executive ego. The next CEO wanted to make his own mark, mm-hmm. and everybody was comparing him to uh, to Burke, and he didn't look as good as Burke. And so what he had to do is get rid of all the stuff that Burke did and do his own thing. And his own thing was basically to try to really, really ramp up short-term profits to make the investors love him. The and, timing uh, has to, yeah, has yeah. to be underscored. I, I really do wonder if those sort of short-term returns and short-term wins drive this. Oh, that's oh, that, that it's it's there in almost all of these cases. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the sad thing is that the history of J&J since then has been one of repeated ethical lapses and regulatory noncompliance. And so, we, you know, suddenly this company goes, you know, from being, uh, you know, a, a model of how to really run an ethical and marvelous mm-hmm. business to one that is um, uh, an, an example of exactly how not to do it. And it happened very quickly. And in most of these cases, the companies that where they're doing well, they will get acquired by another company, and then the company itself will disappear. But certainly the practices that made the, co- the company great vanish when, when, when they've been acquired. Or just the next uh, successor in management, as it, the case with Jim Burke and, and Johnson Johnson, wants to make his own mark, so he stops doing it. In many cases, as as I cited with uh, Robert Owen, the CEO will get fired by the board, or, or the investors will, 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 will push him or her out. And so... Um, it's very, very difficult to, to really to sustain these practices. Yeah. It's not actually that all that hard to do them, but it is very, very hard to sustain them. Bart Houlihan, who founded B Corporation, B Labs, was inspired to do so in part because of what happened when they sold their company and won. And they'd, they'd had a lot of great social practices, and those disappeared when it was sold. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 132. We're talking with Jim O'Toole, Professor Emeritus at USC, Marshall School of Business, and the author of uh, his recent book, because he's done all sorts of other books, Enlightened Capitalists, Cautionary Tales of Business Pioneers Who Tried to Do Well by Doing Good. So, Jim, at the end of your book, you highlight the, the sort of six trends that are a source of optimism about the future. So if anyone, if any of our listeners are reading it, hang on, hang on, because <laughs> it can be sort of oh boy, you know, uh, a little bit, a little bit fatalistic. Uh, but then you highlight these six trends that I think are real bright spots and reasons for hope. I'm going to summarize them quickly. One is a gener- an emerging generation of enlightened and effective business leaders. Two is the emergence of new forms of tech business practices. Three is the advent of a consortia of enlightened capitalists. Four is social entrepreneurship and B Corps. Five is a change in investor attitudes. And six are public concerns. I, I'm making a bold request that we run through these and, and illustrate for our listeners sort of what the good stuff looks like so they can find it and follow it. Do you mind if we go through all six? Yeah. Well, actually, let's go to the really the strongest one first. Okay. We, talk, we have time to do that one because there's, you know, one of those, I think, you're, play, uh, you're playing happening. favorites among your trends, and we're, we're here <laughs> yeah, for it. I really, yeah, because some of those others are, are iffy. But the one that really seems to be working is the one that you decided a couple minutes ago, which is the, the whole trend towards benefit corporations. I mean, benefit corporations are really designed to make it possible to sustain exactly the kinds of practices that have not been sustained you know, over the last 200 years in Britain and the United States. And um, 
So I, 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 companies like um, Patagonia, for example, uh, probably the best single example mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, of a benefit corporation in which um, the, the founder's central belief is that after he is dead and long gone, that the practices that he put into place will still be there for generations later. And he's done everything he can to create the kinds of constitution and, 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 and uh, structure and ownership in the company so that those those ideas will, will continue. And so there are a lot of benefit corporations. The only bad part about benefit corporations is that most of the companies are very, very small. Mm-hmm. I mean, Patagonia is a middle, middle, medium-sized company. It's one of the biggest, and it's the exception. Yeah, and, and Unilever, but, you know, just recently. Well, no, well, not Unilever itself, by the way. I mean, Unilever just goes the other way. Ben & Jerry's, a subsidiary of um, Unilever, is a benefit corporation, which is a rare, very, very rare thing. But uh, Unilever has gone exactly the opposite direction in that the investors pushed out the CEO, Paul Pullman, who was attempting to make um, his company into an example of really the only large global corporation in which socially responsible practices would be ingrained in every single thing that they did. And the investors got tired of it because he was making money, but he wasn't making enough money. And Pullman is out, and the company is backing away from the, the, the promises and the commitments made under uh, 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 under Pullman. So I, I'm not so sure that that's a, that's the best example. But you did mention social entrepreneurship. There are social entrepreneurs now out there, quite a few of them, who uh, are really committed to these things. Again, the companies tend to be relatively small. There are also employee-owned companies, quite a few of them. Uh, and in some cases, uh, employee-owned and family-owned in partnership companies that are trying to put into place uh, systems and and to ingrain in their cultures these practices, enlightened practices. Um, Companies like uh, W.L. Gore uh, and Associates, where it's a combination of of family ownership and employee ownership, Uh, SRC uh, Holdings, which is um, uh, an an employee-owned firm, and these companies um, are really looking for to the long term, not only just to, to making sure that the practices last the next three or four years or five years, um, but really to the next generation of, 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 of leadership. So in, among those benefit corporations, social entrepreneurs, employee-owned companies, and the larger number of companies today that are talking about writing constitutions for the companies so that the, the trustees of the company or the boards of the directors of these companies will have to be committed to upholding and maintaining the practices after the death or, or, or this, uh, the passing of the founder. Well, and I think this, this harkens back to one of the things you had mentioned with Owen, that nobody else followed him. So he was just sort of standing alone doing all this good stuff. I do think there's, um, you know, it's, it's slow and kind of under, under the wire sometimes, but there is increasingly a push towards expecting more and more from corporations, right? And it's still hard because you've got the consumer demand, you've got the, the employee demand, you've got the, you know, the sort of community demanding as well versus the, you know, the people who are pushing for, for the short-term profits. But it seems that there's more – you're less a target and standing out alone if you're a company trying to add some of this ethical and Ooh. sustainable stuff in. No, I think it's even more than that. I think that almost every major corporation today is talking about social responsibility and they're talking about the environment. 
The problem is when you actually look at what they do, they do the absolute minimum mm-hmm. necessary so that they don't look like they're the bad guys. And um, uh, uh, my colleague at the University of, of California, uh, David Vogel, did a study called uh, Is There a Market for Virtue? And he, you know, because the idea was maybe consumers want to buy products from companies that are clean. And uh, maybe the pressure will come from, the, from that end, from the consumers, because it certainly wasn't coming from the investors. And what David found is, is that there is a limited market for virtue. Yes, that there are some uh, environmentally conscious um, consumers uh, out there. But do they represent the majority of people? You know, not, not really at all. I mean, many of us uh, talk about you know, supporting our local bookstores. You know, we all want to support our local bookstores. But when it comes to how we spend our money, we go on to and, and we buy it on Amazon and we save 40 percent off, off the price of the, of the book. And that damn so, one click is so easy. Yes, it's, it, it is. And, and it's also when, we, when you go shopping. Well, how, you know, how often do you really ask yourself, you know, am, is this really the environmental thing? Or I've got this product and it's wrapped in this hard plastic shell. That hard plastic shell is, only, you know, is not biodegradable, right? You say, well, I'm not going to buy that product because of it. I mean, most of us feel we want to get rid of that plastic, but when push comes to shove, you know, as consumers, yeah, we're, we're in, we, we don't really practice what we preach. And so that's another trend that sort of pushes against what we're uh, what we really what we need, I think, in, in society. So, Jim, you've you've done obviously deep research that goes without it's a big saying. Book. It's a big book. <laughs> <laughs> so for um, so it sounds like you stand behind B Lab and the B Corp certification. I just want to tell our listeners what to look for. This logo sort of looks like a trademark logo or a registered logo. It's the, a capital letter B, I think, with an underline, and it's in a circle on products, and so. You can go, I think a grocery store is a good place to look because you've got a lot of brands there on on the shelf and you can see certified B Corps. And this means that they have been certified and um, sort of audited in a way that has given them the stamp of of ethical responsibility. So, Jim, what is what is one to do about this? It sounds like you believe consumers should put their money where their mouth is or heart is. What else? I hope they do, yes. You know? uh, well, it is, it is the, the best thing that could ever happen would be a really change in investor attitudes. That's one of the trends that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a couple of good things that are happening there, that uh, some of the large uh, uh, pension funds um, have uh, CalPERS. Yep, uh, CalPERS is a good example. Being, being, being probably the best single example, the largest example, are really now um, – talking about changing their practices so that they are not just trying to maximize short-term profits and investing in companies that are maximizing short-term profits, that they will also take into account in their investing uh, practices the uh, social impact of, uh, uh, of the products and, and the policies of, of the various companies. They've started to move in that direction. Uh, they've done a little bit of it, and there are a few other socially conscious investing groups that are moving tentatively in, in that direction. And I look at them in depth in the book about the strengths and the weaknesses of each of those. If that were to grow to, uh, to be a really a, um, uh, a major trend rather than as it is now a, an exception, uh, then I think that would have the greatest impact on the behavior of, of, ex- of executives and corporations. I, I've, I've, and I just want to punctuate. I've said this 40 times in the show if I've said it once. Impact investing is not just for ultra net worth individuals. 
you know, a lot of sort of retail investing opportunities for impact investing are now available. And even if you don't want to move your money, you can tell your advisor or whoever manages your 401k that you care and that this is yep. important to you because this yep. is what's going to push these trends. Mm-hmm. Jim, are you seeing we're, we're seeing millennials and women and sort of wealth inheritors disproportionately reporting that they care about impact in their investments. Are you seeing the money move? No, not really. I mean, it, there are there are enough exceptions that you can actually have a conversation about it. Okay, so you know, that, so there is something happening. Is it happening in terms of uh, the vast majority of investment? No, but, but the point that I think we've got to keep in mind here is that most executives, I think, really want to do the right thing. And uh, I know I, I, I taught sixty seminars at the Aspen Institute for top executives, and almost every one of those executives said to me that if they could get away with it, they would do a lot of things differently than they do. But they also understand that if there's any um, diminution of profit as a result of taking social actions, that their heads are probably going to be on the chopping block. And that the, so that they said if the, if the board were to support, the boards were to support me, and the investing community would, 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 be, would be supportive, I think that we could change our uh, our policies, and I, w- I certainly would do different things. But I, the choice between keeping my job and doing something, the right thing is, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to keep my job, and they're, and they're very honest about it. So that's why I think it's got to start with the investors, and it's got to start with the boards. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's probably more likely it'll come from the investors and the boards because I think the boards will, you know, really they. It doesn't seem they take on so much of a leadership role and to make these kinds of changes going on. So I think there's also some interesting things that we've seen in some of our discussions where it's been like upstart companies uh, that will introduce an innovation that larger companies can advance. So I'm thinking, for instance, about uh, Loop, which is yep. done by TerraCycle, and basically what they're trying to do is go back to the milkman. So instead of having disposable containers, they have containers that will you know, have detergents in them and then will have ice cream. And then when you're done, you bring them back to the store, and the store takes the responsibility of sending it back, et cetera. But that I keep thinking you have to make it easy for consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Because we we all know that research on having too many decisions to make leads to just convenience like, nudges. Give very, me a tuna fish. Very yeah. small convenience nudges. Exactly. Change and, behavior. And so it's got to be easy. Well, you know, one of the the interesting things about these cases that I've studied about about the fifty of them that were uh, where people really did something really significant and while making money is that each of those. CEOs or founders who did the good thing said, what I believe I am doing is setting an example that other executives will follow when they see how successful it is, when they see that I made it work. And the saddest thing about my book is that time and time and time again, what we have learned is that when there are good examples of alternative ways of doing things out there, the, um, there, there is a, an incredible tendency to ignore it and to try to go along with business as usual. And, and, and um, executives tend to follow the herd rather than chase after the, uh, the, the exception. And that's, that, that is one of the things that, that we're up against. I think it's just really, really part of human nature. But the good thing about these stories and, – and, and I don't want to – Don't leave, leave us the, on a note of pessimism, Jim. These stories are marvelous, okay? I mean, these people are my heroes. 
uh, uh, even if things didn't always turn out right in the very end, they were so inspiring because they chose that it can be done. And, and you can learn from their examples if, you are, if you're a business person. And, you know, I, I haven't given up. I really believe that things are changing, they can change, and that these stories, which, which I'm just trying to be as objective about as I possibly can, I think that these, are, these stories point the way for, uh, for, for the future. And I think that, uh, you know, when we, when we learn about these things, you really can't help but believe, darn it, you know, we can make this work this time. So uh, I should buy Patagonia stock, and who else? He can't buy Patagonia stock. That's one of the things he won't do. Is uh. he owns, he's kept the 100% of the company. And in most of the companies who have succeeded, you cannot buy their stock because what they've done is they've kept they, the, 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 the stock is owned in the trust or it's owned by the employees or it's owned by a family. And uh, uh, that's really been one of the secrets. For example, uh, Alabama Cast Iron Pipe Company, which you've never heard of in no. Birmingham, Alabama, one of the longest success stories uh, in, 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 in America in terms of right in the, in, in the worst time of Jim Crow, they set up a company in, in which blacks and whites are treated as, as, as equals, they're paid equally, they share all the same social benefits, um, it's the safest the, uh, company in its industry. And um, it's just continuing year after year after year. This company shows that you can uh, produce products safely, cleanly, uh, environmentally uh, safe, uh, and treat your employees very well and still make a profit. And the company, the reason the company has been able to last and been able to do that is because the founder, uh, uh, way over 100 years ago, uh, wrote a constitution and created a trust in which the the, uh, the board of directors uh, are sworn to uphold those practices. And that what they must do is to put the interests of the employees and the community first in everything that they do. The same story in in the in the UK uh, with the John Lewis Partnership, which is the largest big company uh, in um, the U.S. or the U.K to have uh, gone through succession after succession of leaders while maintaining truly enlightened practices. Again, that company is owned by a trust, and everything they do is done on behalf of the employees and the customers. Well, Jim, so, come buy the stuff. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.